part of that conversation that we just had really applies to our next guest. Uh, Jonathan Wilkinson, of course, is the Minister of Energy and Natural Resources. The minister today, of course, uh, was in town announcing 400000 in new funding for a pilot project uh, with the International Association of Firefighters. The organization will train 25 instructors in Kamloops on teaching urban firefighters how to deal with wildfires that encroach on communities. Minister Wilkinson, thank you for joining us today. Not at all. Thank you for having me. So let's talk a little bit about this new fund. How would it work? Well, this uh, this new program comes, you know, kind of on top of a number of other commitments we've made around funding for equipment and funding for the training of, of different firefighters. But this is specifically uh, a program with the International Association of Firefighters, and it really relates to uh, communities that, that are kind of in that interface between the forests and, and communities we see increasingly um, fires that are actually threatening communities. And so this program is really about funding the International Association of Firefighters to um, do training of firefighters across the country um, to ensure that they are prepared to actually engage in that interface. So it's a bit different from what they do in their normal jobs, and it's about ensuring that we're making good use of, of the great firefighters that exist in our, our communities already. Mm-hmm. Um, how much of your decision-making and government's decision-making has now evolved, never mind specific policies around, uh, uh, around uh, climate, but just in regards to how government views all of its policies in the context of climate change? Well, I think it has evolved a lot, um, and I think it's particularly involved, you know, there's lots of conversations that have been going on for a long time about how do we reduce carbon emissions. That's, that's all important and fair enough, but I think what has really evolved in the last couple of years um, is the reality that policies today actually have to be rethought and reframed in a manner that actually ensures that we can adapt to the impact of climate change that we are seeing all around us in the forest fires and floods that are happening, the extreme weather events that seem to be occurring more and more and more. So it is affecting pretty much everything that we do. You've got to look at it through a different lens and ensure that you're prepared. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's been some talk uh, of a national firefighting service that can augment provincial firefighting services. Uh, you know, here in British Columbia, we have a pretty robust system because we've had to deal with uh, forest fires for many, many decades, uh, and and even more so now. Uh, over the last four years, they've been challenged significantly. Has there been any talk about a national firefighting service that can help augment some of the stuff the provinces do? Well, there's certainly been discussion about that. Um, you want to make sure if you're thinking about creating new organizations that they are actually going to make a significant contribution. So, you know, we already have pro- provinces and territories are primarily responsible. They're the front line and they have most of the resources. And there is an organization that's based in Winnipeg that is all about sort of the, the sharing of resources across provinces and territories to try to ensure that we are utilizing resources effectively. The federal government obviously participates in that both because we have firefighters in Parks Canada, but also because increasingly the Canadian Armed Forces um, are deployed to help with uh, with many of these issues. So the federal government is already actively involved. There is a coordinating mechanism that exists. We are looking at other options and other models um, to see if they could add something on a go-forward basis that we don't have today. But I would say that there is actually a lot of collaboration and coordination between the federal government and the provinces and territories. And the federal government obviously also has agreements with many other countries who have been very helpful to Canada um, during this terrible period of time um, to ensure that we can facilitate um, 
firefighters from other countries coming and helping us here uh, when we need it, and of course, sending Canadians to help uh, other countries when they need it. Uh, I just signed an agreement with the United States to help to make this more effective and speedier mm -hmm. <laughs> to be able to actually leverage those resources. So I, I think there are a lot of things in place. We're looking at it, but, but I, I want to make sure that we're not just adding more bureaucracy, that it's actually going to achieve something significant. Yeah, it's one of those things that sound good and would look good on paper, but you're right. Uh, you don't want uh, any wasted tax dollars, especially when the provinces are, are sort of leading the way in, in that yeah. regards. Uh, let's touch on something you, you've you uh, announced uh, and talked about uh, last week, but I think it's really important uh, and that is, of course, uh, the federal government uh, is saying that basically provinces need, need to move towards a sort of a non-emitting power grids to access clean energy investment tax credits. There, of course, has been some pushback by Alberta and Saskatchewan saying, look, the 2035 target doesn't work. It's not realistic uh, that we should be aiming for 2050, which they say is much more realistic. What do you say to that argument? Well, I say, uh, I think it, it starts by saying different provinces have different challenges. And, and of course, the challenges for places like Alberta and Saskatchewan, which still utilize a lot of uh, coal and natural gas, are different than for, you know, British Columbia or Quebec, where there is uh, an abundance of, of hydropower. So I, I, I certainly recognize the challenges that some provinces face. But I would say that Getting to a clean grid is critically important for us to achieve our climate goals. I mean, it's not just about electricity. It's, a, it's a, in terms of cleaning up the grid. It's also about we need more electricity to eliminate emissions from transportation. We need more electricity to eliminate emissions from buildings. Um, and it's also the case that we can't actually seize the economic opportunities, and they're huge opportunities, unless we actually have clean power to flow to the industrial facilities that want to produce products with virtually zero carbon. So... I say we need to actually work together. Um, there is no disagreement, I think, with Alberta on the end goal. We both agree we need to get to a clean grid. We both agree that it needs to be affordable for consumers and it needs to be reliable. But at the end of the day, um, we need to move expeditiously. And, uh, and my offer to both of those provinces and to all provinces and territories is let's sit down and figure out how we do that as fast as we possibly can. Uh, and our guest here, of course, is Jonathan Wilkinson, the Minister of Energy and Natural Resources. Now, Minister, the carbon tax is going up and continues to go up, putting a price on carbon, many have said, is supposed to impact consumer behaviour. But critics are saying it's not impacting consumer behaviour as much as people wished it had. There's pushback as well in regards to the affordability challenges many British Columbians are presently facing. What do you say to people who think maybe you should put a break on raising carbon taxes at the pump year after year and slow down a bit? Well, I say um, a couple of things. I mean, the first is the price on pollution, and it is pollution, and you're a pricing pollution, um, is, is uh, about actually enabling folks and, and pricing in the costs associated with, with that pollution is about in, encouraging behavior to choose lower carbon alternatives. Um, and yes, affordability is important. That's why the federal price on pollution, we have a rebate that, you know, eight or 10 folks who pay the price actually get more money back than they pay. Um, it's why the industrial price is structured in a way to shield um, companies from competitiveness impact. So they pay on a certain portion of their emissions, but they actually have to strive to be best in class. And so we do think about competitiveness. We do think about affordability. But at the end of the day, I mean, look at what's happening in the climate around us. We actually have to have a thoughtful and concrete climate plan. 
And to be honest with you, it does drive behavior. I mean, this is the reason why we're seeing uptakes of electric vehicles and stuff is increasingly it's cheaper and cheaper and cheaper to run an electric vehicle because the cost of the electricity is far lower than the cost of gas that embeds the carbon price. So I think for those who are concerned about climate change, it is the most efficient way to address emissions, but it's not the only tool that the federal government is using. Mm-hmm. Canada's a leader, but there are many countries around the world that use the price on pollution. Do you, do, what do you say to those who say, look, this is just an opportunity by the Liberal government to kill the oil and gas industry, that this is, a, it shouldn't be this way, but this is where we're headed, just because it's, it's difficult to do business here because of not just the carbon tax, but other taxes as well, and the general overarching a philosophy of this government when it comes to legislation, that this is going to kill the oil and gas industry. What do you say to that argument? Well, I, I say I work with the oil and gas industry pretty much each and every day. Um, I say we, we are not endeavoring to kill the oil and gas industry. What we are endeavoring to do, though, is reduce demand for oil and gas that is used in combustion applications where you're creating carbon pollution, Um, and particularly those applications where you cannot capture and sequester the carbon. And so, you know, we need to do that. Every country around the world needs to do that if we're actually going to have a habitable planet for our kids. There will continue to be a role for the oil and gas industry, even in a net zero world. Lots of the applications that exist today, lubricants, asphalt, you know, carbon graphite, um, I mean, petrochemicals, a whole range of those things, and in the case of natural gas, hydrogen, Um, Those are all things that don't require combustion or can be done in a manner that are very, very low emission. So there is a continuing future for the oil and gas space, but it is a a sector that, you know, the the amount of oil that we use, the amount of gas that we use is going to inevitably have to decline or we are not going to address the climate issue and our children are going to face a very, very challenging uh, circumstance indeed. But are we at that point in your mind where the rubber does hit the road, where you are seeing serious impacts on pricing affordability for people, though? I mean, I, I hear it on this show, and one could argue, well, people are going to call. It's the nature of talk shows. But, uh, you know, and I've said from day one I'm in favor of putting a price on carbon. But my concern is that it, we, we get to the point where we make it unaffordable for many families, that there is inevitably a pushback at the ballot box, saying these liberals have gone too fast and too far, and I'm, I'm with a Vancouver-sized mortgage. i got a lot on my plate as a consumer, and I, I just think you guys need to slow down. I can't afford it anymore. Do you worry about any backlash towards you and your government because of the speed at which you're moving? Well, I think we, always, we, we obviously have to be concerned about affordability. Um, that is something, obviously, that's important for each and every Canadian family. Um, and, you know, with respect to the price on pollution in particular, that's the reason why we structured it in a manner where all of the money is rebated. And it's actually rebated in a way that actually benefits people in more modest incomes versus those who have, you know, a 6,000 square foot house. Um, and so, as I say before, eight out of 10 Canadian families actually get more money back. So that is not an affordability challenge. I recognize that inflation has, has really squeezed families, for sure. And that's you know, why we brought forward the grocery rebate and a bunch of those other, other policies to try to actually help with some of those affordability issues. I think for those on, with mortgages, absolutely higher interest rates are squeezing people. We need to be thoughtful about that. We need to continue to work to try to address the housing pressures that are creating um, the challenges. We need to hopefully start to see an easing of interest rates as inflation you know, becomes more and more under control. But yes, we have to be worried about affordability. But let's not let's not conflate fighting climate change with creating affordability challenges. We have to do both. And to be honest with you, if we don't address the climate issue, as I say, 
um, you know, the future for our kids is a bleak, bleak future. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you raise a very good point. I mean, we spent a lot of time covering uh, the issue of wildfires uh, here in BC, and of course, uh, in Maui just yesterday, we covered it uh, today as well. So. Uh, you're absolutely right. The repercussions are, are, are around us, that is for sure. Minister, thank you so much for your time today. Have yourself a wonderful weekend. All right, you too.